sound six. I not see right the present lyrics. When you hear them, you sound like Christy Biscuit. You come in at the place and we say, well, well, slick. Keep on bump, hey, yo. Trouble no one. Anyway, this is Bro Diallo Show, Q4 Radio, AM1680. Today is March 4th in the year of your Lord, 2020. I am broadcasting out of Q4 Studios. You can find us at q4.org, TuneIn app, iTunes Radio, of course, the city of Chirac, state of Illinois, United States of America, ka, Black voters have spoken. The black electorate has spoken. Menticide, indoctrination has spoken. Bobby E. Wright, I read way, way, way back in the early days of 75 and the black space. I read way back in the day. Dr. Bobby E. Wright said in 19... What was it, 80 or 81, that the number one threat to African people, the number one threat. Now, if you were to ask me, I would say the number one existential threat to black people across the globe would be the emerging climate catastrophe, global warming, climate change, ecosystem collapse, loss of biodiversity, food insecurity. That's what I would say would be the number one threat above everything else. If every other problem was addressed that befalls African people was addressed across the globe, we could still face imminent extinction if this one thing left was left. That's what I would have said. And that's what I still say. But I'm wrong. I'm absolutely incorrect in that. Because Bobby E. Wright said, back when I was a child, when I was a, but a baby, but a boy, that the number one threat to African people 
the primary existential threat to African people across the globe is menticide. Menticide, as he defined it, was the systematic and deliberate destruction of a people's mind with the ultimate goal being the extirpation of those people themselves. The destruction of our capacity to cognate, to construct rational thoughts, concepts, ideas, and then act accordingly. Dr. Bobby E. Wright told us that the symptoms of menticide was anti-intellectualism, apoliticism, and ahistoricism, which are some things that you would might think are minor. So what if people are apolitical? There's so many things beyond politics. And besides, for most people, politics only happens once every two or once every four years when you go to the polls. That's the beginning and end of politics. So being apolitical, what's the big deal? I don't pay attention to politics. So what if the average black man knows more about sports, athletes, ball chasing, gives more of his cognitive energy into contemplating which ball chasing team, which baseball, basketball, football team will get to the finals, get to the championships, which teams will recruit which players, what are the weaknesses and strengths, which divisions, which conferences, all that bull who cares because politics man they they don't it don't matter anyway they don't count our votes anyway that they know more about that so why am i talking about this anyway because we had our super tuesday 14 primaries clustered together and these are what is called the Bible Belt, the black voters. The black voters. The southern, the old black ladies, majority of the voters. Senior citizens, aged, above, middle-aged, senior citizens of African-American heritage living below the Mason-Dixon line, living in the old Confederate racist states of the dirty, dirty South, where the Republican Party is so dominant throughout the South that black people have managed to create a plurality, a dominant force within the Democratic Party in places such as South Carolina where the black voters make up 60% of the Democratic voting base. 60%. We even hold either comfortable majorities or or significant minorities in Democratic parties in most of these cities and, and, and counties throughout the United States. We are not just the backbone, but the central nervous system of the Democratic Party. Which doesn't mean very much, given our minority status in the general election. But in primaries, it's quite influential. Which is why every time you look around, you see some cracker politician up in some some Negro church. Repeating the old southern cycles. Of black people praising a white God. 
And on the very altar where we praise a white God is a white man standing there appealing to our sensibilities, to our moralities, to our hopes, our dreams, our fears. It's utterly disgusting to me. Real talk. I avoid the South. I remember I was a block brother. And we used to have to go down to the Missouri-Tennessee border. And we would go to these kids across America and Kennecook camps. I was a liberal. I wanted to be positive. I wanted to help inspire young black people to be positive. I was into black excellence, black achievement, black integration, black opportunity. And I would go to the South. And it's a different type of place. I even have people tell me all the time, I'm moving to Atlanta. And, and, and I know uh, Pimp C said Atlanta ain't the South. I beg to differ, but that's, that's, a, that's a debate. Georgia is the South. It, it earned those South Southern credentials, racist Southern credentials, and I don't think it's right to deny anything or anyone what they have earned. Render unto Caesar. But anyway, I digress. All that to say is that black people of the South have spoken. Our grandmas, our aunties, some of y'all's mamas, uncles, daddies have spoken. And what has the black community concluded? That they seek a repeat of 2016. To quote Cornell West, Biden versus Trump is nothing but neoliberalism versus neo-fascism. And neoliberalism gave birth to neo-fascism. If it wasn't for Obama's centrism, if it wasn't for Obama's refusal to enact the will of the people, but to represent the will of multinational corporation and the billionaires and millionaires, the people would have never been vulnerable to the rhetoric, to the manipulation, to the anger and despair that would lead them to vote for a pathological incompetent fascist like Donald Trump. Trump owes his victory in 2016 to Obama, more so than all those rednecks, hillbillies in Appalachia, the Oklahomas, those insane Mormons, to the minority of, of, of Zionist, vicious, brutal genocide of Zionists, he owes it to Obama above all of his other confused and racist constituents. Because the same people that went and said, I'm going to vote for that nigger, that's what they say. You had a lot of racists who voted for Obama. Not out of love of Obama, like y'all vote, but out of utter desperation. And that desperation turns into psychosis into insanity into rabbit jingoism and nationalism as it always does so we're going to repeat this historical cycle every vote that one of your aunties grandmas in dirty south all the black folks who didn't have the gumption to get the hell out of that southern hellscape i I wish i hadn't put it that that's going to come back to bite me but I digress. All the black folks left behind, the Left Behind series <laughs> in the dirty, dirty South. Every time, every vote they gave for Biden is a vote for Trump. We did 
neoliberalism versus neo-fascism in 2016. We did DLC, Democratic Leadership Committee, Corporate Establishment Status Quo Democrat versus far-right-wing irrationality. We did that in 2016, and you lost. And Biden is going to lose to Trump again. And it really, what frustrates me more than anything else is this new phenomenon. I used to call it Obama legacy, but now I'm going to start calling it the Obama curse. Obama, from Emancipation Proclamation, you study election cycles going all the way back to 19, uh, I mean, 18, 19, 1870, 1872, 1874, 1878, 1890, 1900. You go to all of these biannual election cycles and you will find that without hesitation, black people have been the most far left progressive voters in U.S. electoral history. Unparalleled. And with the advent of Barack Obama for the first time, and this isn't just voting for left-wing candidates or progressive candidates or liberal candidates or reformist candidates. It's not just voting for that, but advocating for liberal, leftist, progressive, and even radical policies if we could. Black people were the political consciousness of America to the point where even white people acknowledged it. Even when there were fringe candidates like Jesse Jackson, run, Jesse, run. Even, uh, but there's a caveat to that because we don't trust third parties. So within the Democratic Republican duopoly, We've been far left. We wouldn't go outside because there are elements, political elements outside. Green Party, Libertarian, even the U.S. Communist Party sometimes runs candidates. We don't leave the duopoly. But within the duopoly, black people have been the most left liberal. Everyone says it. Sometimes we're celebrated. Like in the 70s. In the 60s, we were celebrated. In the 80s, in the Reagan era, we were condemned for it. And white people say slick stuff and say, oh, black people vote for free stuff. Black people voting for welfare. But in the same time we voting for free stuff and welfare, we're voting for environmental regulations to preserve the ecosystems and prevent pollution. We're voting for other displaced and disadvantaged populations, immigrants, who come here and stab us in the back at first opportunity? Refugees. We were voting for a, a, a less aggressive, less militaristic foreign policy. So at the same time, we was trying to get our housing vouchers and our welfare checks. We were fighting for a much more just world. Throughout our history, we were known as that. Throughout history, there was whenever there was a war, and they would go and poll the populations. They would find that the African-American community or the black community or the Afro-American community or the Negro community or the colored voters 
Whatever name they title we, we adopt for ourselves or they impose on us, they always find that black people couldn't be trusted to be good Americans. We didn't support the wars. We didn't support the sanctions. We didn't support the bombardments. We didn't support the, de uh, the, the detainment camps. We didn't support the omnibus crime bill. We were in favor of liberalization, housing, food, education, abortion, more to a greater degree than whites. And yes, and I'm not saying all black people had the same political views. Black people are not on a monolith, as Uncle Tom's is so fond of saying. Yes, but I'm talking about stats. I'm talking about pluralities. I'm talking about majorities versus minorities within groups, by and large. Even if it was an unpopular, there were more black cap. In fact, all of our movements go back and study for, I don't care if it was the radical Malcolm or the integrationist Dr. King. They were like, black people are communist. Black people are sympathetic. They used to call us pinkos. Pinko means you weren't fully red. You weren't a full communist, but you had leftist leanings. You had communist sympathies. Obama destroyed that. Some of y'all think that's good. Because now we move closer to white people in some positions and we've surpassed white people in some positions. Some of y'all think that's good. Some of y'all are still hardcore integrationists. You want no more than the white man has. You will accept no less than the white man has. You want to be equal to your oppressor. And being equal to white, your oppressor, makes you equal to your oppressor to the point where y'all have lifted up and funded leaders who said that our goal should be to be made white in the eyes of the law. That when a policeman pulls over a black man, he sees a white man. When a black man walks into a bank, he sees a white man. The bankers see a white man. When your black child goes to a, a school, you see a white man. And Doc Amos Wilson, long before Yvette Carnell, the uh, ADOS movement, African descendant of slave or American descendant of slave, they always f switching the name because it's such a despicable title to give yourself. They keep adjusting foundational black American, whatever you want to call it. Amos Wilson said, how deep-seated must your self-hatred be to want to see yourself erased from history and to be encapsulated, engulfed, swallowed whole by your oppressor and a system that was made off of your utter dehumanization and degradation. So under Obama, for the first time in American history, and Obama said, I want to expand my drone bombing capacity. I'm not content with just murdering women and children in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in Somalia. I want to murder people in Libya. I want to murder people in northern Pakistan. I want to murder people in Libya. I want to expand into to, to northern Nigeria. I want to expand. I want to take these drone bombs, these multi-million dollar bombs, and drop them on $15 tents. Without any accountability. And the white majority says, we don't know about this. Do you support Obama's efforts? Obama's expansion of the drone problem? Obama's uh, intensification of his war on terror? Do you support? And white people were like, eh, I don't know if I trust that boy with the bombs. I don't know if he's responsible enough with the boy with the bombs. No. And whether for whatever reason, whether because you're a racist and you don't think a black man is responsible enough with the bomb or you're a liberal or a progressive and you just understand that it's against international law and against basic human decency to murder people 
from the upper atmosphere where they can't even see the bomb until it, 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 it turns their children to pace. For whatever reason, that is the leftist liberal position. And they went into the black community and said, what do you think about this? I trust Obama. I, I, oh, well, if Obama, if, if, if Momar's a terrorist, oh, what, I trust Obama. So black people, for the first time in history, went to the right of the white majority. And the white majority was to the left of the blacks. They said Obama wants the right to silence whistleblowers. Obama wants the right to unilaterally execute U.S. citizens without impunity. Obama's going to extend his occupation of Cuba and keep Guantanamo Bay open and not going to release those prisoners. I trust Obama. Obama wants to put boots on the ground in Syria. Oh, well, I trust Obama. And our trust for Obama caused us move to the right. The average black voter is now more conservative, more right wing. The average black Democrat has more regressive political positions and supports more regressive candidates than the average white for the first time. And I used to call this Obama's political legacy. Now I call it Obama's cultural curse. This is a curse. Because even if we didn't have power, even if you can't influence anything outside of your own damn brain, at least in your mind, I knows right from wrong. That was us. We used to knew. Hey, if we didn't have nothing else, we don't got the money white folks got. We don't have the power white folks got and authority. We don't have the, the, the influence. We don't have the material infrastructure, the means of, but one thing we got is our culture and our morality and our standards. And whatever conditions the white man puts us in, we will hold our heads high, knowing that we are the righteous people. We are a people of dignity and principles. That used to be the rhetoric. But now we want to grind, secure the bag, pimp holes, whatever. The Western contaminant, all these degenerate Western values, we put a little swag on it. We throw some Ebonics and stir it up in there. And the average black person has Western, Judeo-Christian, materialistic, conservative outlook. And we uplift these black capitalists. And I hate it having so many. You go all the way back. Black people, when it started, we had scholars for leaders. We had scholars where our early, our first leaders were, were ministers on the plantations. The ministers say, obey thy master. And for all the suffering you endure on this mortal plane, you will have be rewarded tenfold in heaven. That was the role. And they did that role loyally. Black ministers, black preachers, black holy men. After we got off the plantation, we started following Booker T. Washington's. Men of, of learning, men of standards, Marcus Garvey, the great Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. You'll see our earliest leaders, scholars, lettered men, you know, from the black fraternities and the black Masonic societies. Some of them happened to be preachers, but we didn't follow them because they were men of the cloth. We followed them because they were men of the book, not the holy book, but scholarly books. But then, as time progressed, those old slave preachers, 
that went from teaching submit to your master. They, they wrestled themselves back into power. And I came up under a reverend. Dr. Martin Luther King, Minister Malcolm, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Minister Farrah Khan, Pastor Al Sharpton. And I'm like, this is whack. Wiggity, wiggity, whack. I hate having these. Well, why can't we go back to scholarly leaders? The scholars didn't go away. We just started ignoring them. We still had Dr. Clark, Dr. Ben, everybody, all the names, Dr. Chelsea McIntyre, Dr. Harris, my husband and wife, sociologist, doctor, the Dr. Harris. But they were they were second seat. You know, they'd have a lecture. Dr. Amos Wilson would have a lecture. You're lucky to get five people. Some pork chop preacher throws a tabernacle revival and you get 50,000 black folks. That was the state of things. And I thought to myself, there could be nothing worse than having all these ministers as our leaders. And some of y'all think y'all oppose black leadership by denying black leadership. That's another thing. Stop doing that. It doesn't help us. I ain't my leader. Jesse ain't my leader. But you don't defeat leaders by denying their existence or denying their status. You know, imagine if George Washington, King George ain't my king. And that's all he did. He would have been decapitated. Oh, they didn't even have the guillotine back then. <laughs> well, he would have been strung up from the nearest tree in his beloved Virginia. Which, hey, I, that's a vision I'd love to see, but I digress. I thought to myself, there's absolutely nothing worse than having a, a religious-oriented leadership in the black community. But, oh, I was wrong about that, too. Because the only thing worse than being led by black preachers is being led by black capitalists. They're worse than the preachers. They're just like the preachers. Submit, work hard, and your rewards will come. Except they re- it removed even the, the pretend, the, uh, the, 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 the lip service to morality and standards and, and, and humility and all the other rhetoric of the Christian church. So long story short, black people, went to the kitchen, to the political kitchen, and served up political victories to a racist white man, Biden, on a silver platter. We are the great black cope of the centrist, right-wing, neoliberal corporate-crats, not even Democrats, corporate Democrats. And obliterated any thoughts of reform. And I know some of y'all revolutionaries are like, I ain't with reform. I'm not with reform either. But I understand that a population that can't even, you know, accept reform ain't about to consider revolution. But y'all think revolution is just going to come down on high. Y'all are just as dogmatic about revolution as these other people are about salvation. It's going to one day come in a big bowl. There's no increments. There's no steps. There's no timeline. There's no systematic progression. Y'all believe in revolution the same way the, uh, uh, the Bible humpers, thumpers believe in it's going to come in a big ball. Just one bang, a big bang, boom. One day we're going to be revolutionary. You know, I don't vote. I don't participate in this politics because I'm a revolutionary any day now. And I tell y'all like Dr. Clark told me, 
You can't run an African economy if you can't run a candy store in Harlem. And well, ain't no candy store in Harlem going to free us. No, but it will give you the fundamental skills and insights. And I learned so much by engaging. I am a revolutionary. I know that I will not be liberated by engaging in local electoral politics. But I learned so much about governance, learned so much about people, learned so much about organizing. I get so many skills that will inform and, and aid me in my revolutionary work. And what did Mao say, a, 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 a revolutionary Mao say? He said the revolutionary is the fish, the people are the water. So if you, are, if, uh, if you are a revolutionary who do not engage with the people, you are a fish out of water. You're out of breath. You can't maneuver. You can't advance. But anyway, black people, y'all getting y'all repeat. Y'all into that. The Lakers, three-peats, the Bulls, what, four-peat, five-peat? Y'all into back-to-back victories when it comes to basketball, ball chasing, and y'all into back-to-back losses, swish, when it comes to politics. Because Trump already demonstrated that he can defeat a neoliberal centrist Democrat. How many neoliberal centrist Democrats do do the Republicans have to beat the hell out of and hand back to you in disgrace before you learn that neoliberal Democrats can't win national elections anymore? Shouldn't win. I'm not voting for no damn Biden. I'm not vote blue no matter who. That's what they tell us. They give us a scumbag uh, candidate of... And, and what's Biden's platform? Biden's platform is not Trump. Does he does he have any plan for debt relief, any plan for housing, any plan for for retracting the wars? Does he have any plans for limiting the genocidal governments of 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 uh, um, Israel? Now, the genocidal in, in, in the Philippines, the genocide in in uh Somalia, the genocide in the Sudan, the, the atrocities in, in, in uh, Brazil, the atrocities in, 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 in northern Nigeria. Biden has nothing. Only thing Biden has, Biden's name should be changed to not Trump. I'm not Trump, even though a good 80 percent of Trump's platform I totally agree with. And the difference between Trump and and Biden is more of style, not substance. But I ask what, what I ask people, what is his platform? Does he have any plan for housing? Ecology, debt relief, the the overall the concentration of wealth within the economy, monopolism. Well, we know what his plan is. You just go back to the Obama administration. He says, I'm going to be Obama's third term. That's what Hillary ran on. Hillary says, I'm going to take the baton from Obama and I'm going to keep going in the same direction. And she lost the most humiliating political loss to a pedophilic imbecile. Is he a pedophilic imbecile or imbecilic pedophile? I don't know. Allegedly. A man who has more than two dozen sexual charges. A pathological liar. She lost to him. People were like, I'd rather have Trump. Ugh, gross. I can't even look at Trump. I have to avert my eyes. The dude's weird looking. Pathetic. And she lost to him. And Biden is trending to lose to a greater degree than than Hillary. But hey, black folks, 
you know, if I was president, if I was the leader, if I was your Lord and Savior, I'd have some other thing. So now black people, and it's black people, and nobody loves, this is the Blame Whitey Show. White folks love coming on my blog and anonymous, anonymously coming on my blog saying how I blame white folks for everything. Oh, you think the white man, the white man, and I do, I do. I'm the one black man left that unapologetically blames white folks. But I got all the documents you need. Everything I blame the white man for, I could take him into a court of law and make my case. I don't just blame empty. I blame because there's evidence. And I learned something from getting my undergrad and my master's degree. That when you go get white folks that tell on other white folks, you know, you go in there, Dr. Clark said, Dr. Ben said, Dr. Do- 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 all these black names, Chinwezu said, you know, Franz Fanon said, Dr. Shakanta Jop said, no, I don't do that. I'm like, well, hell, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Jean-Paul Sartre, Hobbes, Calvin, you know, Martin Luther, not the Kang, but Martin Luther, the, the monk. When you hit white folks in the head with other white folks, they get stumped. So, yes, I do blame the white man, and I use the documentation of other white people to back, but... I can't do that now, and I'm mad as hell because that's my my hobby, blaming white folks. And all the white people, all the haters that listen to this show out of spite, you know, I, I and I admit, yes, I do blame the white man for damn near everything. Or some people don't say white. Some people say I blame America for everything. Like, America does all the wrong in the world. Yes, yes, America does, yes. It's all America. It's wrong. America's the problem. America's the evil empire as the... Iranians coined that phrase. Or Rage Against the Machine, also their wonderful, dope album, Evil Empire. America is the evil empire. But today, 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 I cannot blame Whitey. Because New Hampshire, (laughs) Iowa, 90% white, they voted the racist northern white cities were more progressive by and large than the old who Southern Bible Belt colored folks, old plantation stalkers, cotton pickers. Get mad at me if you want. I'm mad at y'all too. But I, I'll say like Dell Jones would always say after he would, would cuss people out, this is criticism with affection. <laughs> this is criticism with affection. I can't say it like him. I'll try it one more time. This is criticism with affection. So, Alusha continua. The struggle continues. Super Tuesday. Just speaking of Super Tuesday, we had a super tornado. And what's curious about this super tornado? Because I was raised in what was called Tornado Alley. You know, I was just on the uh, outskirts of Tornado Alley. I was raised in Kansas City, Missouri. And even though it's not located in Tornado Alley, when I was a kid, when whenever tornado season would come, because you got northern and, and, and central Texas, Oklahoma, all of Kansas, and I lived, you know, I lived probably two miles, two to three miles from the Kansas border, or the Missouri-Kansas border. I was on the Missouri side. But Oklahoma, Iowa, a, a Tornado Alley, Right? And whenever the tornadoes would start hitting Kansas, we would get the remnants of it. 
And I remember having to run, and I lived in the projects. We didn't have basements in the projects. Well, they had basements, but they people lived in the basements. Like, if you had a project home, you had that one level. And you had people on top of you. You had people underneath you. You had people on the left of you, right of you. And some people, depending on what unit, on the front and back, you were surrounded. Sardines. But, and so when we had a tornado warning, there were certain shelters in the projects. So when you went to shelter from the tornado, you couldn't shelter in your own domicile. You had to go to this common area, the laundromat. How many of y'all from East Hills Village, Kansas City, had to go to the laundromat when the winds is shaking? And I remember when I'd have to go to the laundromat in East Hills when it was a tornado, I would look around at all the other black people from my project, and I would see the things that they would bring with them. You know, like my grandmother would bring the family Bible into the to preserve it from the tornado. A lot of kids would come in there with their sneakers and they wouldn't be wearing their sneakers. They would be holding them to their chest. And I'd look around like, dude, I'd go with like a couple of my poor righteous teacher CDs. I didn't even have CDs. It was cassettes, actually. And my cassette, my Sony Walkman, my aunt gave me a Sony Walkman when I was in the eighth grade to inspire me to do better in school, whatever. But anyway, um, my aunt would give me, um, I'd come there with my Poor Righteous Teachers and my Boogie Down Production cassettes in my pocket. People, a lot of kids, they'd be so, most of the kids had their Jordan sneakers held to their chest. But I remember that. And so I was kind of like, I lived in mortal fear of tornadoes, of more so than anything else. I lived in fear of being swept up. And you know, the, the Wizard of Oz, where is that? Right in the heart of Tornado Alley. She's swept up by a tornado and taken to the, to the land of Oz by a tornado. Because Kansas is the most tornado-prone state. Maybe it competes with, uh, with uh, Nebraska. Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, it goes all the way up to uh, South Dakota, comes all the way down. But anyway, there was an article some years ago that said that Tornado Alley was shifting as a due to changes in the jet stream and changes in the concentration of, of heat in the upper atmosphere, which is giving more power and more frequency to tornadoes and other mega storms. And I read this a few years ago because I was kind of would think about tornadoes. It's been over a year since I've lived there, but I read that. And like a place like Tennessee was outside of Tornado Alley when I was a kid. Nobody ever heard about tornadoes in like eastern Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama. They had floods. That was flooding, flat flooding country. But now Tennessee was hit with one of the most powerful tornadoes in its history. And they have this thing called the EF scale. Let me see. It's called the Enhanced Fujita scale. And the Enhanced Fujita scale basically tells you how powerful a tornado was. And the, the scale goes from zero to five. Five is the highest. Five is a tornado with 200 plus mile an hour winds. Or gust. They say gust instead of wind. I don't know. I guess it's not technically wind. It's gust. But whatever. Wind gust of 200 miles an hour. Or more. That's an EF5. Which is hella powerful. 
Tennessee just yesterday was hit with a EF scale of three. And three is wind gust of 135 to 165 miles an hour. 22 people were killed. They haven't even summed up the, the damage. And the estimates are from high to low, hundreds of millions to, to low billions in estimated damage. And what's really got people shook up about this is that this tornado hit about 20 miles outside of Nashville. And that's another thing we don't see very common. When we you see a tornado, you're seeing trailer parks. You're seeing rural, you know, cows. They say a cow flying into a barn. It generally hits low population rural areas or low density areas. But now that the new tornado alley, um, in fact, uh, the New York Times had reported uh, the part of the country famous for its quote-unquote tornado alley may be in jeopardy of losing that distinction. A new study says that tornado threat zone may be spreading eastward to the distantly populated southeastern United States, and that could lead to a threefold increase in disaster potential. One of the studies, Arthur says that climate change could be behind the shift as drier air creeps into the southeast. Such a shift would be good news for southern and western plains. This is how white folks think. Oh, your misery is my profit. You know, it's like, oh, good news. People are still dying, but it's not me. Psychopathic racial personality. I mean, subtle, but it's there. Such a shift would be good news for southern and western plain states, but a threat to others. More tornadoes in more vulnerable areas in a more vulnerable area is a recipe for disaster. The new study conducted by two severe weather researchers, Dr. Harold Books of the NOAA National Severe Storms Laboratory in Oklahoma and Dr. Victor Jensey of Northern Illinois University, noted significant increasing threats of tornadoes in proportions of Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, where I am now. I see the, the damn tornado alley is following me. And of course, Alabama, Tennessee. And even Florida, it jumps over Georgia for some reason. I don't claim to be an expert. This is just something from childhood trauma, running from tornadoes, getting under desk and running to the common basement in the project. I'm not an expert, but for some reason, Tornado Alley jumps over Georgia. So, you know, y'all Atlanta, feel free. Enjoy your strip clubs and your, your, your donk cars with the big wheels because it jumps over. It goes from Alabama to Florida with barely scratching weird but you know um it says and from another scientific journal it says there is growing evidence that a warming atmosphere with more moisture and turbulent energy favors increasingly large outbreaks of tornadoes like the outbreak we've witnessed in the last few days of penn state university climate researcher uh, michael mann there is evidence that we might be seeing an eastern shift in regions of tornadoes Genesis, again, consistent with what we are seeing, he added. Now, these are two different reports, but I've got a bunch of them. They're saying that due to climate change, due to global warming, uh, the uh, tornado alley is drifting eastward to population centers, the big cities, Chicago, uh, Indianapolis, you know, Nashville, 
uh, Alabama, Mississippi, even Louisiana. You, y'all used to have to trip off of Mississippi, southern Alabama. Used to have Florida used to have to worry about hurricanes, and now it's hurricanes and tornadoes. And what the reason I say it's ironic, it hit a place like Nashville because Nashville is heavily Republican. Nashville voted, uh, what was it, um, over 60, 60.7% in favor of Trump. As soon as Trump got in, he says, I'm done with all climate change research. I'm defunding all disaster preparedness related to climate change because, hell, climate change is a Chinese hoax. So all these people in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Arkansas, all these southern states that vote for these climate denying right wing Republicans that defund as that believe in this bootstrap mythology. They want to defund NAFTA so they can give billionaires tax breaks. They want to defund the Army Corps of Engineers so they can give billionaires tax breaks are now in the eye of the storm. Literally and figuratively. And now they're going to face more severe weather uh, instability and catastrophes with fewer resources coming from the federal government. And they are still voting for this. Now, a lot of them think this is an act of God because we are living in the last days and the tor- and the stores and the torrents and, the- and God will not put on you more than you can bear. Hallelujah. So. All of these delusions, there is a convergence of ignorance and ill preparedness, even though the resources, the research, the monitoring instruments are all there to protect people, to move people out of harm's way and to even mitigate the intensity of the frequency of the storms by reducing carbon emissions and in utilizing carbon sequestration technology. Nobody gives a damn but me, bro Diallo. I eat vegan, I recycle, and I advocate for ecological sanity. Everything from planting trees to the, to, to the reduction of fossil fuel emissions. There are so many solutions that are doable for us that would even be beneficial above and beyond not having your house blow away, improving your air quality, your water quality, the soil enrichment, And you're better overall sense of self. You're not such a dumbass that you deny basic science and evidence. So it's ironic that the southern states that believe that God is in control, God is in control. So they vote for politicians that promise to bring them spiritual and moral government are going to be some of the people that are faced the most immediate and, and and already the farmers, remember Kansas, all the, the, the corn fields were all underwater, the wheat fields underwater, the flooding. But they're not feeling it because if you listen to the Bro Diallo show Monday, what I say? 40% of the revenues come from Trump just dumped another $16 billion, like a whole lot. Bam. Trump, them, the, 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 the uh, Midwestern, Northwestern, and Southern farmers are up on that pole. Slow motion, moving in slow motion. And the Republican Congress and the Republican executive branch are making it rain on these holes. Welfare. And the same people that that promoted the mythology of a welfare queen 
now have been exposed to be welfare kings, farmers, industrialists, investors, corporate banking. They're the welfare kings. But people still worried about this mythological black woman in the ghetto buying a Cadillac with her food stamps. I digress. The United States, under the Trump administration, has signed a peace agreement with Afghanistan. First of all, let me say congratulations to the people of Afghanistan. I owe you both my congratulations and an apology. I apologize as a citizen, unwilling, by no fault of my own, I am citizens of one of the most bloodthirsty empires the world has ever seen. One of the most criminal empires, the United States and the United States military, which is not an army of liberation, which is not an army of democracy. The United States military is a mercenary army that takes poor and working class youth in with the promise of assistance in education or give them some purpose in life or for whatever other delusional reason that people are still voluntarily enlisting for honor and glory into the U.S. military that illegally, and, and, and I hate this myth that the United States' longest war is Afghanistan for a few reasons. Number one, the United States is not at war with Afghanistan. Can you go and show me where Congress, because I know the rules for declaration, for, for warfare. There's two things you actually need for war. Number one, you need U.N. approval to go to war. Because the U.N., the United States, is a signatory to the U.N. treaty. The United States helped to set up those laws and write and impose those laws. So no nation can legitimately and legally go to war without the uh, approval of the U.N. and more specifically the U.N. Security Council. That's the only way to justly go to war. If you, do, if you don't do that, you're not at war. You're engaged in armed criminal action. Number two, the Congress must approve. The Congress is the only governing body that can declare war on another nation. The president cannot declare war. The Supreme Court cannot declare war. Only the Congress. Show me the, the, the written, declar signed declaration of war that names Afghan the nation of Afghanistan as the, the enemy nation. There is no declaration of war. What is happening in Afghanistan is an invasion, occupation, and armed critical criminal action. Every soldier, every general, lieutenant, captain, every uh, uh, president, every chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, every president of the United States since the year 2002 is engaged in armed criminal action and should be brought up on criminal charges. George Bush, Bill, not, well, Bill Clinton for other reasons, but he predates that. But George W. Bush too, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump are all international war criminals. By the laws that those, that white people drew up, that the United States, they break in their own laws. So it's not a war. But even liberal outlets like Democracy Now! say the war in Afghanistan, the war, that's not a war. That is an armed criminal action. That is an invasion and occupation. But that's what the bad guys do. You know, Hitler invaded France and occupied. Stalin invaded, I mean, uh, what's his name? Vladimir Putin invaded uh, Ukraine and annexed 
Crimea. Now, the United States didn't invade Cuba and, and annex Guantanamo Bay. We're tenants, not invaders. But even let's say all your rhetoric. Let me say, I just go with the flow. White daddy said, white man, the Caucasus Mountain white man said, it's a war. Fine, it's a war. But what y'all doing math saying that Afghan is America's longest war? The United States has been at war with Afghan since 2002. That is, I calculated in my limited mathematical skills, that's 18 years. The United States has been at war with the sovereign nations of the United States, the native nation first people, since 1776. And I only say since 1776 because that's when the United States was founded. And you can't blame the United States for any crimes that were committed prior to 19, 1776 because the United States was a colonial empire. So you got to go back to the British crown. So the British crown war on Native Americans dates back to the 1600s, really to the 1400s if you want to look at all of Europe. 1400s, it, it, you go back. But let's just say, let's just say the United States, since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the ratification of the uh, Constitution, the first 13, 13 colonies consolidated into a confederacy, all of that good history. Let's say from 1776, America's date of birth to 2000. What year is this? 2020. The United States has been at war. But some of y'all might be like, oh, y'all don't want to. Okay, let's do how you define war. They live within the same borders, even though they're sovereign nations. So every, right now, the United States is currently at war with Native Americans. But yeah, that's a mucky thing because we all occupy the same land. So let's do foreign wars, which would be more comparable to the Afghans 18 years. United States has been at war with Cuba since 1962, 58 years. And yes, uh, having a military blockade and economic sanctions are acts of war. So they, the United States has been in active, ongoing war, sabotage, military blockade, espionage, assassination attempt of their national leaders since 1960. That's 58 years. The United States has been at war with Haiti. Yes, the same assassination, coup d'etats, blockades. Invasions and occupation since 1915. That's 105 years when the United States first engaged in war against Haiti. Palestine, a.k.a. Israel, since 1948. That's 72 years. My grandmother is older than Israel. North Korea, since 1950. That's 70 years. I could just go on. And these are legit wars. However you define wars, arms, blockades, uh, uh, no peace treaty signed, invasion, occupation. United States, in, 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 as, as the war is defined in Afghanistan, there are dozens of places. Afghanistan is not a United States' oldest war. And can I say another thing? The war in Afghanistan did not start in 2002. But, you know, here's the scary thing. White folks are rewriting history in the middle of the making of the history. It used to be the history would happen. And then years later, after when it becomes history, you rewrite history. They're not even rewriting reality. It's not really called rewriting history. They're dictating reality. The white man says, well, this is a war. Soldier versus soldier. Nations versus nations. A war of ideas. A fight against terrorism. A spreading of democracy. When it's not a war at all. But anyway, they signed a, a peace treaty. Or, or, or they're in peace talks and they have an agreement. Shout out to the Taliban because the Taliban stopped 
the 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 U.S. empire has I wouldn't even say stop, but they have attenuated. They have forced the United States corporate empire to reassess their strategy. They force the 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 white invaders, Urugu, to go back to the drawing board because they expected to roll over Afghanistan, to roll over Iraq, to go into Yemen, Syria, North Africa, the PNAC. They wanted global domination. They wanted domination of not just the oil fields, but over the trade routes over which the oil is shipped. They wanted to control the resource, the extraction, refinement, processing, distribution, and profit of the world's most essential resource. That was just one part of the overall PNAC plan. And it is in turmoil. It is not going according to plan. They were supposed to have all this done before George W. Bush left office. This was all supposed to be done within the eight years of George W. Bush. All of these agendas should have been completed. Remember, they said when we go into Afghanistan, they would throw rose in Iraq. The people of Afghanistan would come out and celebrate and throw rose petals at our soldiers' feet. Remember that? It's a long, long time ago. But those people are like, no. The leader of the Taliban said, throw down the tomahawk. My people are as eager to die as your people are eager to live. And how many times did the United States, the United States is negotiating peace with the Taliban after defeating the Taliban at least 10 times. That the U.S. media came and said, the Taliban, Mullah Omar, in 2013, we've killed Mullah Omar, better days ahead. And then Mullah Akhtar Mansour. And then Muwali, Hibadala, Asabuka, they, and and the leader of the Taliban, his official title, title is Commander of the Faithful. There have been at least four commanders of the faithful, leaders of the Taliban, that have been murdered by drone bombs. And they don't even know because they, again, United States bombs from way, way up in the sky. But, as most recent as 2016, they killed the commander of the faithful. I'm going to try to say his name again. Uh, Mawali Habdallah I just, Mullah Omar, he was one of the first well-known. They killed him in 2013, uh, and then they killed him again in 2015. He was actually killed twice. And then Mullah uh, Mansour, who was killed in uh, 2016, and then another Mullah. Uh, commander of the faithful and so now they got this guy they went it was like what what do you know every time we kill a new leader we cut the head off the snake and they the snake grows two more heads so now this this guy mullah abdul gandhi uh babadar who now that trump talks on the phone they went from bombing these commanders of the faithful from the atmosphere to calling them on the phone like dude 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 so anyway Trump had a conversation with him the other day to make sure that the peace agreement moves forward. And basic thing, what the Taliban told the U.S. said, number one, get your troops out of our country. So Trump said, we will have a troop drawdown. Now, back in the early 2000s, 2000 and the mid 2000s, we called that cut and run. When 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 Obama says, I think I might take the troops out of Afghanistan, they said, you're going to cut and run. 
But now when a Republican, when a white man's in office and said, well, I want to bring the troops out, they call that a drawdown, a, a strategic retreat. It's not cutting and running, but Trump is cutting and running, which I agree with. I think all troops everywhere, bring the troops back from North Korea, shut down Guantanamo, bring the troops back from uh, Okinawa, bring back all the bring back all the AFRICOM troops. I think everybody, if you got a U.S. citizenship, get your ass back here. And if you're going overseas, you should not have an M16. You should have a passport. But that's me. That's if I was president. Number two, an end to the economic sanctions. And into the echo, because, you know, Afghanistan is under economic sanctions. There's a lot of materials from medicines to academic uh, uh, materials and, 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 and infrastructure materials and technology that Afghan cannot import and resources that they're unable to export to build up their economy because they're under sanctions. The United States' uh, second most deadly weapon after the drones are their sanctions. More people die from U.S. sanctions than U.S. bullets at this point. And the number three was a prisoner exchange. There are over 5,000 members of the Taliban who are in prison. And Trump said, yes, a boss, yes, a boss, yes, a boss. See, they only understand mutually assured destruction. The only way that the Taliban got to the negotiating table is to say we have the equal capacity and we have the capacity and we have the will to kill you and your capacity, our capacity and will to kill you is as strong as your will to kill us. So throw down the tomahawk. We're going to get it on and we can do this as long as you can. Let's do it. And so that's the only time white people are able to be like, whoa, whoa. Now I have to share in the dying. I'm dying too? Wait, well, let's negotiate. Let's sit down like civilized men and women. And remember, peace, that's what, what Dale Jones called loosening up to get a tighter grip. That's all. To Europeans define peace is preparation for wartime. You have war and preparation for war, but they don't call it preparation for war. They call it peace. I got a caller. You're on the Bro Diallo Show. State your name or alias where you're calling from. Hello? Oh, sorry. Hello, caller? Hey, hey, state your name or alias and where you're calling from, please. Sure, I am Anthony calling from Chicago, South Shore. Uh, just here to give you a call. Hey, what's up, brother? Hey, not too much. I uh, actually wanted to get some advice. So, uh, recently, more or less, I got to put some of these kind of radicalized, if you will, by just love to uh, left wing YouTube from like Peter Carlson to Black Red Guard. I've uh, read a few books like uh, Blood and I, uh, to start Doth Cocktail. But before I know that people can really get things you know, moving further left, people need to be more or less organized around their needs. So I was wondering if you were aware of any organizations that were attempting this now or any advice on just getting something started in my own community. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, to be honest with you, I've been in Chicago for um, over a decade now. Just over, now, I'm, I'm, I came here in literally just over a decade, and I've started three organizations. And Chicago is one of the hardest places in the country. I've worked in from the West Coast to the East Coast, Midwest, Dutty Dutty South. It's one of the hardest places to not just get an uh, organization or an action started, but to get it sustained. It, 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 when you're doing leftist organizing, if you're doing integrationist, there's money, you know, anti-violence work, all that. There's a lot of not-for-profit funding and a lot of on-the-ground support. 
but um, I'm now organizing or building with the uh, African World Coalition, but it's I'm not even taking a mass organization support simply because, you know, you you can get numbers out, and and we, when we had the Bloom Collective and and uh, the the Chicago Agenda. Uh, you you can get a lot of momentum and put up a lot of resources and then it just tends to implode, you know, and people start to faction and fraction. So I, even though as old as I am, I'm still learning to navigate the Chicago political and ideological landscape. But, you know, and I've gone from trying to build, you know, political power in this city and, and create international and national political ties to just like well let me see if i can just sustain this this urban agriculture and do uh some some ecological work on the ground because this city man this city and i even talked to long-time organizers i've sat across from some of the most long-term organizers and they they share the sentiment i mean i wish i had something better i but um let me think if if there are if you absolutely there are individuals i could name but as far as active revolutionary organizations none that i'm comfortable vouching for understood i know rev comments pretty close to me but i know it's a cult of personality so i'm staying far away uh so fair enough um okay well in that case i'll keep an eye out just in case uh but uh yeah i guess thank you though because that's good to know too um are you uh i do do you follow me on mm-hmm. facebook are we friends on facebook uh, uh, I follow you, um, but I took like a little break from Facebook, but I'll be back on there on like the 11th. Um, but yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll send you a phone request on Facebook, I suppose. Uh, but I do follow the Bro Diallo show though. Okay, that's good because I, I do, I organize more targeted campaigns. So if you go to the African, follow the African World Coalition site, um, mm-hmm. there's work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done and I you you normally the way you organize is you start a movement you establish an ideology and a mission statement and all of that and then after you establish the ideology you you start to do the work you start to identify areas and arenas and vulnerabilities and openings and you start the work so now I'm kind of reversing that where I start the work and I try to have the work coalesce into an ideology and a movement as opposed to have a ideology and a movement start the work so there, there are. So if you are are follow the African World Coalition, or if you listen, I will be announcing. Um, we're about to start our 2020 uh, uh, urban agricultural program. We're still working and researching to develop a um, cooperative enterprises. I really um, am thinking about very, very seriously about a third party forming a, a formal third party uh, political process because the Democrats have. You know, after since this uh, Biden debacle are completely (laughs) morally and and ideologically uh, bankrupt. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it's really not in the form of a mass movement, which is what we need. I haven't given up on the the idea of a mass movement, but the opportunities for mass movement, it's just a lot more energy than it than you put a lot more in to get uh, very little out. Okay. In that case, I'll definitely keep an eye on the World African Federation. So, and also, uh, to a good point, because I tried to see if there's anything happening in the area, and I couldn't. 
I mean, there was like activist uh, organizations like um, with BYP 100, but even one person I know from that organization found themselves wound up with like 80 West. So I'm not too sure what's happening out there anymore. So uh, you should see. Yeah, but the struggle continues. And now you have to fight to fight. That's what I call this part. You know, you have to fight. You have to struggle to find a place to struggle. <laughs> you have to fight to <laughs> find a place to fight, you know. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So I'll let you get back to the show because I'm listening. In. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And and I'll call again. And uh, I appreciate your your uh, reaching out. Okay. Thank you. All right. Peace. All right. Good to hear from the brother. But I wish I had a better answer for him. Anyway. Um, Afghanistan. Right. Um. So and 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 here's another thing that that's trippy about that. Then we'll get to our topic. What am I skipping? Cause got too many notes. Then we'll go. I ain't gonna talk about public enemy. Enough depressing topics. I didn't even plan on talking about electoral politics like that. But anyway, the Trump administration went to negotiate with the Taliban and completely left out the Afghan government. The Taliban is not the government in uh. Afghanistan. The current president was Ashraf Ghani. He is the president of Afghanistan. Now, he is a puppet president. He just moved to Afghanistan with the invasion. They literally brought him and Ami Karzai, whom he replaced. The two presidents of Afghanistan were literally in the back pocket of George W. Bush. This, this Ghani guy, of course, he worked for the World Bank, a capitalist educated in the United States. He's only lived there since 2002. He hadn't lived in Afghanistan for decades prior to that. Educated in the United States, fluent in English, and fully integrated into Western American culture, which is an anathema to to, to the, the culture of Afghanistan. And now he's there installed as a puppet leader. And I keep telling all of you puppets, active and potential puppets, the United States always, I don't care, Mobutu in Africa, you know, the DeMarcos, and 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 in uh where you call it in the philippines uh the baby and papa doc in haiti every puppet every puppet little puppet every puppet of the us empire always gets screwed over in the end but they still get puppets i wouldn't puppet i mean if you're going to puppet puppet for putin puppet for china don't puppet for america i mean damn how many how many more but i digress so the United States went in and neg- negotiated uh, troop drawdown and the end of sanctions and the prisoner exchange or release of Taliban prisoners, 5,000 Taliban leaders and uh, soldiers and officials. The United States can do two of those unilaterally. They can withdraw troops, which the Afghan puppet government is like, yo, what's going on? Can we get in? What? How are you? Neg-? That would be equivalent to a foreign nation. Let's say China coming to the United States to sit across from the Hell's Angel because the Taliban now are officially an armed criminal group, an armed gang. That would be like the Chinese government coming down to sit down with the Hell's Angel and says, we're going to negotiate with the Hell's Angels about American policy and about the trade war between the United States and then signs an agreement with the leader of the Hell's Angels. And then they expect the U.S. government to honor that agreement that they because they're all America. That's how white folks are so racist. 
Like they say, a nigga is a nigga. They say a sand nigga is a sand nigga. And I hate to be crass, but don't make these words up and then try to punish me for saying the stuff you made. If you didn't want me to say it, shouldn't have made it up. Anyway, that's that's what, uh, um, what's his name? Paul Mooney said, white folks mad at me for saying nigga. You the one made it up. Anyway, so the president was like, I can't stop you from taking the troops out. I can't stop you from ending the sanctions, but I'm not releasing one damn troop. So the Taliban was like, deal broken. So the Taliban is back to doing attacks. And that's why the president had to get on the phone to this uh, uh, to this terrorist. And remember, we don't negotiate with terrorists. That's out the window. They do. These folks don't even respect themselves. They don't have no self-respect. You know, so where are we? Well, here we are. The United States is begging the Taliban, please stop killing us. The big bad aircraft carrier, nuclear missile, nuclear submarine, technological John Space Force America is sitting down with a bunch of illiterate goat herders to negotiate and beg for peace. And when the Taliban didn't get what they wanted, when they wanted, they say peace over. And the president got on the phone like, please, Mr. Please, Mr. Abdallah. Please. And they've totally bypassed the Afghan government. Still disrespect at even negotiating peace while you're in the midst of violating their sovereignty. Boy, these buggers got no shame. But there's a lesson in all of this for black people. Dell Jones said war is 90 percent cultural. When the United States attacked Afghan, they didn't have an air force. They didn't have a navy. They didn't even have a standing military. They didn't have highways, skyscrapers, or even the Internet in their country. They did not have high literacy rates. They did not even have high rates of weapons ownership. All they had was the, 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 the position that we will govern ourselves as we see fit, and we will fight all foreigners who set foot on our soil. And the, 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 the death in paradise is more acceptable than life under occupation. Dale Jones says 90% of war is cultural. If, if the enemy infiltrates your culture, you cannot defeat the enemy even if you have better arms, greater numbers, more resources than your enemy. The Vietnamese, the Afghans, the Cubans, this has been proven. This is a David versus Goliath scenario. Yeah, that's right, white folks. All you Christian white folks, you're the Goliath. The Muslims are the Davids. In, Tala, in, in, in Afghanistan. They're the David. And I literally, I don't, I'm no, even me disrespect to the Afghan people when I say illiterate herdsmen. Illiterate herdsmen were able to defeat satellites and drones and aircraft carriers and B-52 stealth bombers and the most highly trillion dollar black budget funded CIA they withstood it all, and now the United States is at the table with their tail between their legs. This is not an undefeatable beast. With some, with some commitment to your cause and a little bit of guerrilla warfare, you can take down the largest genocidal imperial force in the world. All you brothers raving Uzis on YouTube, all you black gun club enthusiasts, Showing all your intricate weapons and your extended clips 
all over Instagram. It don't mean a damn thing if your ideology isn't sound. If you cannot consolidate your ideology amongst your community and demonstrate to your community that your ideas are more viable. All you people who aren't about talk who ain't about action. It is the culture of the Afghan people, the self-identity, self-definition of the Afghan people, which led them to this negotiating table. Who brought their enemy to the negotiating table and off of the battlefield. It wasn't the quality. They were using literally Cold War era Kalashnikovs. Rusty wooden Kalashnikovs and homemade bullets. But y'all don't hear me though. Bro Diallo Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. Tune in app, iTunes Radio, and of course Q4.org. Please support the Bro Diallo Show via Patreon, via PayPal, to help sustain this program, progressive media, revolutionary pan-Africanist media, and rational, cogent analysis. If you do not have the monetary funds to support, please be a part of our active listenership. I got another caller. Bro Diallo Show. Welcome, caller. State your name and al- or alias and where you calling from. Uh, my name is uh, Scott. Yeah. How you doing? What's up, bro? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I just, uh, just uh, logged in to YouTube. I just saw you speak. I've been watching for a while your political analysis, so... Uh, were you uh, talking about Super Tuesday at any point during this episode? Because I wanted to get my thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I opened the show talking about Super Tuesday. So, so if you could go back okay. and, and listen, but yeah, what what are your thoughts? Um, I'm hearing a lot. Uh, I'm hearing a lot about how uh, you know, young people didn't come out or anything. That so I'll just give you an example uh, of pretty much what uh, young people have to go through. I'm 35. Um, my first election that fall was 2000 election. We all know what happened with that. Wait, wait, I hate to interrupt you, but are you listening to the show in the background? Because I'm getting some feedback. Can you mute the uh, show in the background if that's the case? No. No? Good. No. All right. Uh, so we'll just no. work through it then. Proceed. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, I had to go somewhere else so that doesn't have any noise. But um, the first, my first election I, uh, I followed was the 2000 election. And I stayed up all night and I realized, like, wow, they just stole the election. <laughs> they literally, I was 15 years old. Fast forward two, uh, four years later, I voted my first election, John Kerry. Um, I'm actually, I live in Ohio. So I remember Clint Blackwell. We we know what happened there. He actually won won Ohio, but there's a lot of shady stuff going on in Ohio. In 2008, I vote for Obama. That's actually the last politician I actually voted for. And we, you know, a few years later, Occupy Wall Street happens. And they get they get swept off the streets. Um, a few years later, we had this wave of uh, police brutality, and nothing gets done about it. And so, when you're asking young people to come out 
and to, you know, get involved in the process and you throw so much at them. Like, even, like, I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of uh, places in Texas, Latino areas, that polling uh, places closed, and they had people online for, like, four hours. Like, there was another guy that was in line for, like, seven hours, and, and you're expecting these people to come in. You know, even, like, I'm not I am glad to see that Sanders actually gives people, you know, more on the left to, you know, to the conversation to happen. Like, you would never have heard had the Democratic Party talk about Medicare for all, cancel all student debt, and tuition-free college. But, you know, they stole the election from him in 2016. So, there's a lot... There's a lot that young people have to, you know, put up with, and I don't know if it's uh, about being lazy as just feeling defeated. I I agree with your sentiment. I'm I'm a I'm a just mute you for a second for the. But I agree with your sentiment. There are two uh, political researchers. One is by the name of David Daly, and he wrote the book Rat Eft, and of course Greg Palast who showed how they manipulate election turnout. I I don't think that um the democrat the the right wing democrats nor the republican I don't, the Republican party hasn't justly won a national election since Dwight D Eisenhower. Every republican uh elected to the presidency has cheated or manipulated the 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 turnout in order to win since Dwight D Eisenhower. And now because there is essentially a democratic civil war, the right wing or or the corporate democrats now employ the same tactics that the republicans use on a national scale. The, the those democrats use that same on on their local and regional elections to keep the progressive elements from taking power within the democratic party. Mhm. Yeah, and um, I just find it real strange because um, Biden didn't campaign in a month in the Super Tuesday states, right? And he ends up winning Maine, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. Like, I find that real strange. Like, like you don't campaign in these in these states. I know media is a big. Uh, I know media is a big uh, factor, but. I just find that really strange because Massachusetts, Bernie Sanders, uh, only he barely lost in Massachusetts a few years ago. He won in the Minnesota caucus by 23 points. He he won big in Maine uh, four years ago. So it just seems it seems strange that Biden would be able to get those wins. Off of one endorsement from and close and I also will say Elizabeth Warren should be shunned from anybody who calls themselves progressives. Like let let's just put that out there. I I I agree with you on all points, but this is the thing about election fraud because voter fraud is what they focus on, but the real um issue is election fraud because the 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 parties and the states run the 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 elections and 
what they need in order to steal an election in democracy and not have it be identified as a coup d'etat is plausible deniability. They need cover. And the black voters of the South are providing the right wing corporate Democrats with the legitimacy that they need to steal the election. It gives them the plausible deniability of their actions. So if if that's why a lot of election researchers like Greg Palace says you have to overwhelm the polls in order to compensate for the, 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 the theft. They wanted to steal the election in favor of Kerry. I'm not Kerry, but in favor of uh, the Mormon. What's the Mormon? Uh, what's his name? Romney. Romney. Raw money. They wanted to steal the election for raw money, but they could not implement their, their election theft agenda because Obama won in such numbers that if they wouldn't have the plausible deniability when people say they stole the election. So now you and I sit and talk about suspicion and, and what doesn't look right. But when you have droves of, 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 of middle-aged and older black folks throughout the South going for Biden, they have the cover that they need to engage in the uh, election fraud. Yeah, um, I, uh, I really also did not like how everybody was framing this as um, black voters being the quote-unquote adults in the room or how you know, some people are saying, well, black voters are telling you we're the base of the Democratic Party. When I hear that, I hear, no, we're glad to be the captive constituency of the Democratic Party out of fear of the big bad Republicans, even though the Democratic Party are giving a, the Republicans cover more they go right wing. Like it's just it's just madness to me. Like South Carolina, South Carolina is not going to go to the Democrat in the general election. Right? South Carolina shouldn't even be going first <laughs> as quote unquote as part of the black belt. Like it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's fear on both sides because, you know, you say black people vote. But if you listen to white voters or if you follow white folks in general, they vote mm-hmm. out of fear, too. When, you know, yeah. they have more fear than black people have. Remember what they were saying? Obama was a, a, a sleeper agent. Obama was a Mau yeah. Mau. Obama was a, 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 a Kenyan Maoist communist that was going to overthrow they have more I hear them saying the things that the fearful things that white folks were saying about Obama were far beyond all of black folks fear of any Republican candidate including Trump so this fear thing yeah. runs on both sides it's not oh, like yeah. that's unique oh, yeah. to black folks they, they manipulate fear but now it's not so much even the fear but the black leadership it's not an accident yep. Obama standing on stage and, and Hillary Clinton stood on stage with Jay-Z or that Bloomberg mm-hmm. made Bobby Rush, the ex-Black Panther Bobby Rush, his, his campaign co-chair. So it's more mm-hmm. of the black elites, the black people who, who profit. You know how, much, how many tens of millions that Obama has made as a result of Trump's tax cut? So a lot of these uh, political <laughs> movers and shakers... It's like WWE. So there and, 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 and the divergence, the problem with the Democratic Party is the ideological and policy platform of the Democratic Party 
di is divergent from the funders. So the people who fund the, the Democratic Party have interests that are exactly opposite of the, what the funders want. That's why the Democratic Party seems in such disarray, whereas the Republican Party doesn't have that dis dissonance, which is why it seems like they're a much more unified party, even though they hate each other more than Democrats hate each other. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, the thing about the Republican Party, um, <laughs> they would have stolen it from Trump, but um, they created uh, the conditions for Trump to even happen. Uh, you know, but one thing I will give them credit for is they at least um, they at least pretend that they respect the They at least pretend the Democratic Party is uh, outwardly hostile towards their own base of supporters. Like, <laughs> and that has to do with like, money and corporate interests and and power. So. Trump, when you think about it, Trump getting elected president as a Republican, it's almost not surprising because they created the conditions for Trump to happen. The Democratic Party created the conditions for Trump to happen because they turned their back on their working class base and some of their working class base, uh, it, you know, part uh, white folks ends up going over to the Republican Party based off of, you know, the Democratic Party doing things like NAFTA, TPP, um, the economy, not, uh, them not actually going against Wall Street. So it's easier for the Republicans to have accepted Trump than the Democrats to accept somebody like Sanders. Because both of these parties are, you know, connected to corporate interests. So that's, you know, those are my thoughts on that part. All right. I appreciate you calling in. I'm going to move on uh, to the topic. But, you know, I agree with, mu with most, much of what you said, but I don't think there's that great divergence. Uh, between, you know, the Democratic electorate and the Republican electorate, the same or black voters versus white voters. It's the same uh, pimp game run. It's just that we're more vulnerable to the uh, consequences of our missteps than white people can make all the mistakes in the world. And they get all the, you know, Trump screwed over his voters, but then he kicks them down with 16 million dollars in, in, in unsecured uh, aid, you know. And, and last year, it totals between last year and this year, he gave the, the white vote, his white voting constituents, $28 billion. And nobody calls it welfare. If Trump had done, if, if Obama had done that for his black voters, people would be outraged. So, you know, we suffer more from our missteps. We make the same. In fact, white people make more inaccurate steps. The white voters, white masses make more mistakes than we do and suffer less. But that's racism, white domination, and on down the line. But again, I appreciate you calling. I hope you do call in again and continue to listen, bro. All right. Thank you, D.I.L. Peace. Peace. All right. Now, we're going to move on to black spirituality. And we're going to have to talk about spirituality. Now, if you are a spiritual person, uh, let, me just, let me just get into it. Today's show is black spirituality and, and, and due to our time constraints, tomorrow's show will be black spirituality part two. Unless I through, can just run through this or unless y'all come down here and, and tear down the studio. 
you know, there was a common rhetoric in the 90s that black people are a spiritual. We are a spiritual people. And I've always thought that the concept that black people being a spiritual people was one of the most absurd concepts I ever heard. And thankfully, I was so happy that my suspicion that we are a spiritual people being absurd and inaccurate came from was validated by none other than the great Dr. Amos M. Wilson, who dismissed the claim or greatly criticized the claim that black people would love to fall on, that we are a spiritual people. Now, let me first tell you why I'm speaking about this overall. Um, Last week, um, Donald Trump went to India, and the prime minister of India, a guy by the name of Modi, filled up a stadium with 100,000 Hindus, and they were screaming Trump's name. And Trump got one of the largest receptions, most loving largest receptions in all of his presidency, larger than even redneck backwater America singing how much they love Donald J. Trump. And Trump was overwhelmed. He'd never seen such a spectacle. Trump finally got the rock star status he deserved. And he came back to America singing the praises of uh, Modi. And the BJP, some people say the BJ party is really the BJ party. But I guess the BJ party, because, you know, y'all childish. So I have to say the BJP and I can't announce none of these names. But anyway, the BJP, which is by extension, by the transferred property, a fascist party, a Nazi party. The BJP is a Hindu nationalist right wing party. And so you had this man who was a Christian, monotheistic Christian, who was singing the praises of a polytheistic uh, pagan religion of Hinduism. And it made me think, and and shortly after, in less than 24 hours after Trump left, the uh, BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party, embarked on massacres, mass murders and burning and basically ousting ethnic cleansing of Muslims. Muslims are a minority in India. The Hindus are the majority. And also, India is in open warfare and ongoing conflict with Pakistan, a Muslim nation. Now, these people are the same freaking people. They just adopted different religions. The Pakistanis are Indian Muslims versus Indian Hindus. They're the same people from the same lineage, same culture, but they're killing each other over gods. God versus gods. Infidel versus pagan or whatever. Um, so when I was thinking about that, I always think about spiritual people, black people who claim to be spiritual, right? And wait a minute. Oh, anyway, let me tell you about um, the BJP party. The BJP party was founded, I'm going to butcher these names, by the RSS. The RSS is the Rosh Triya Swayalmasek Shang movement, which was inspired by the Nazis. And so the BJP, the Rahyata Yhantyata, it's not even funny. I mean, I can't pronounce. I could go to Google and have the computer pronounce it, but you could do that. I don't have time. I'm out of time. But anyway, the BJP and the RSS formed the BJP, and they still have these concepts, Aryan concepts of racial purity, 
of the caste system, imposing the caste system, and uh, and ousting, making India like the Nazis wanted their Liebenstrom, their leaving, living space to be racially pure. The BJP party and the remnants of the RSS want India to be pure. They want a pure Hindu vegetarian Indian blood purity, ideological and cultural purity. And they want the Muslims to go to Pakistan or to go to paradise. They will kill them or oust them. And in 19, 2019, they came up with the uh, BJP Citizenship Bill or Citizenship Act, which basically has mandated that everyone, all the billions of people living in India have to prove their citizenship. You have to prove that you're a, a citizen of India. And when you prove that you're a citizen of India, you're basically invalidated if you don't have the right blood lineage and religion. So they're basically stripping citizenship rights and status from from millions of Muslims, almost 20 percent of the population and even some moderate to liberal Hindus are like, this isn't right. So the so the Muslims have some out al, al, Hindu allies, Hindu, the good Indians, like we got some good liberal whites. They got some good liberal Indians over there. They're fighting in the streets. To say this law is is unjust. You cannot just strip citizenship based on religion. This violates the very core values of democracy. So they they took to the streets to protest the Muslims and their Hindu allies and the the Hindu nationalists, the right wing Hindus said, you know, we're not going to play this Martin Luther King stuff. We're going to kill you. We ain't going to let you march. And 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 just they went and it was clashes in the streets. And they say, uh. The numbers haven't been tallied up yet of last week's, but they're saying anywhere between 20 to 45 people were murdered, hundreds injured. Hindus and Muslims were injured. And that got me thinking the Hindus, which is supposed to be a nonviolent religious sect, got me thinking about the militant Buddhist in Sri Lanka, Thailand, Myanmar, and even in uh, Tibet. You got the the the. The Buddhists who are engaged in everything from oppression to slavery to to uh, to uh, genocide. And I know from being in the cultural conscious community, you're going to run into a lot of people who claim to be I'm spiritual, not religious. And a lot of them fall back on the doctrines and teachings of these Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, Buddhism and Taoism. Or the way now Taoism is slightly different because even though it has some mystic elements like they believe in divination, it doesn't really have a God or gods or any central holy individual like Buddhism or, or the multiple gods of mystic. But it's another way. I mean, dead prayers. If you go and buy their first album or just look at them themselves, they've got um, the I Ching tattoos and they quote the I Ching throughout their albums. So if you are in the black radical, black conscious, black progressive movement, you're going to be exposed to a ton, a crap ton of Eastern mysticism and Eastern philosophy and Eastern ideology and people who claim to be spiritual and not religious. And I wanted to find some terms before I go and then we'll come back and talk about some of the teachings and why a lot of these Eastern mystical 
uh, spiritual practices are so po uh, popular. And then a lot of African people either claim that the black man is Asiatic. So a Asian mysticism and Asian uh, uh, philosophies are, in fact, African because we're Asiatic people or Asia. The original Indians were blacks and the, going back to the Dravidians and, 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 and the Dalit people and, and all this some level of accuracy, but they take the accurate history and, and turn and, and infuse it with mysticism and make believe, which creates a big soup of interesting stuff that we have to talk about. But first thing I need to do, because if I'm going to talk about spirit, spirituality, you have to define what spirit is. Now, again, in the realm of spirituality, which is one of the reasons I think we need to discuss it is people make their own definitions up. But we have to agree on a base definition. And I know every spiritual person, when you start to try to define and lock things down, they want to go to the clouds. They want to dissolve into mist or emerge like a light beam through the solar system, like some craziness. But I'm not going to let you do that. We got to lock these things down. In terms of our understanding so that we can gain an understanding. So the spirit is basically the non-physical part of a person which is the seat of emotions, character, or the soul, quote-unquote, then your non-physical elements. Because even though you are a physical, biological specimen, there are elements to you of yourself, of your identity, your, your nationality, your, your emotions that don't necessarily, even though there are biochemical markers in there, like emotions have a biological foundation, and even things that we interpret as spiritual uh, revelation or enlightenment or or atonement centeredness you can hook people up to neurological monitors you can check their respiration you can check the dilation of their pupils you can check their biochemical physiology whether or not they're releasing or reuptaking uh, serotonin levels their adrenaline levels the rise or fall of stress hormones in the body there are physical byproducts of all these things we think are otherworldly or outside or superior to ourselves but that's basically what spirit is the non-self and however you define it with your non-physical self you have a spirit of violence and vengeance a spirit of patriotism team spirit pride humility centeredness discombobulation even though they're not fully physical, they you imagine they are physical, but we interpret them as being non-physical or outside or above or distant or or connected to, but somehow unique from our physical selves. So spirituality is basically the quality of being concerned with the human spirit or souls as opposed to mental, material or physical things. So spirituality which I, for, I'm not really content with that definition, where I define it as spirituality deals with the uh, acknowledgement, cultivation, expansion, or, or development of the soul or the spirit. So your spiritual practice or somehow to manipulate or engage your spirit, generally for what are perceived as positive outcome. So a spiritualist is a person who practices spirituality, a person who believes that the spirits of the dead can communicate with living people, an advocate of doctrine of the spirit. Um, 
exist as a distinct from matter, that your spirit is different than your physical self apart from can predate your spirit or can live beyond the depth of the physical body. And some even spiritualists even assert that spirituality is the only thing that's real. The material reality is imaginary. And the soul is basically the spiritual or immaterial part of the human soul. Soul is synonymous with spirit, depending on your religious orientation. And then again, as I had defined in my notes, spirituality are practices that enhance, cleanse, cleanse or purify, unite or separate, feed the spirit is the purpose of spirituality. That's what spiritual is. Practices that enhance, cleanse, purify, unite or separate or feed or elevate the spirit. So the spirituality is nothing more than the attempt is number one, the acknowledgement of a spirit and the attempt to manipulate that spirit more often than not in a positive way, but not always because you have practices such within like Vodun and other, even Eastern mysticism where uh, you can curse someone, where you can utilize the spirit uh, and have and engage in spirituality for negative outcomes, such as curses or hexes or spells that harm the, the practitioner or other people. So that is my understanding, and I have to define that because I am an atheist. So I know when I start to talk about spirituality, people give me the side eye. But most people I find don't even understand what atheism means. Because atheism is not, does not mean you're non-religious. You can be a religious atheist. Atheist is not the opposite of religion. That's why people are like, oh, well, the atheist people are religious too. And they think they're, they're stating some great, or atheism is a religion. Atheism is not a religion, but you can be religious. Religious means just carrying out religious actions. Atheism is about whether or not you accept the, the existence of divine being, of a God. Atheism is not the opposite of religion. There are many ministers in the pulpit who are there to make money and to pimp the flock, and they don't accept or believe that they're a God. They are truly religious atheists. If I right now went to the Buddhist temple and burned incense and did the chants, if I went to the tabernacle and did the Holy Ghost dance, and I read my Bible and I confessed my sins and gave my testimony and I fast during Lent. You know, and I carry out all the religious ceremonies, I would still be an atheist. But I will be so religious is the practice is about the actions. But atheism is the opposite of theism. Theism means that you believe that there is a God or divine entities supernatural entities that's what theism is and there are not a, a lot of non-religious theists people who believe that there is a god believe that there is a jesus and jesus died for their sins that believe that there are ancestors acting on their behalf in some mystical realms that our physical bodies cannot conceive or access but they don't do anything religious. They don't burn candles. They don't pray. They don't read scriptures. They don't meditate. They don't go to church. They don't commune with followers. They don't uh, uh, give testimony of how good the Lord has been to me. In fact, if you go to the average church, sooner or later, your pastor is going to get up and talk about the non-active believers, the people who are dead in the spirit or dead in the faith. That means people who believe there is a God, but they don't do the, follow God's instructions. 
So there's all kind of ways to work with this. People have some really undeveloped, underdeveloped concepts and ideas about this. So I am both atheist and I'm non or anti-religious. But I'm not just an atheist, meaning that I take the conclusion that no one has given any evidence of the existence of God, gods, or any supernatural or otherworldly beings. So I am an atheist because until I am given that such evidence, it is impossible to prove a negative. So it is not my obligation to prove that there is no God. But as the great uh, humanist said, um, great claims require great evidence. You know, that's not the exact quote, but that's why I didn't even say his name. But that's that's the thing. If you make a claim saying I know who created all of existence, you need evidence on the scale of that claim. Now, if you claim I'm the I'm the I'm the smoothest Mac daddy in my town, that's a pretty minor and absurd claim. So, you know, you don't need such grand. You don't need peer review (laughs) to confirm or deny that that assertion. But grand claims require grand evidence. And it needs to be reviewable by someone other than your heart, your spirit, what you feel on the inside. But so I just want you to understand that just because I'm an atheist, that does not preclude me from understanding or comprehending or even communing and engaging or even seeing the merits of certain spiritual practices. So tomorrow we're going to talk about Eastern spirituality, African religions, philosophies, and spirituality, and how spirituality is so prominent in the black conscious community. And a lot of people who claim they, they are not religious and spiritual and why black people proudly boast that we are a spiritual people. And what are some of the benefits and what are some of the liability to this ideology and practice this is bro diallo show q4 radio shout out to my callers shout out to to brother chauncey uh administrator of 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 the youtube feed uh shout out to my listeners and to my supporters to 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 uh uh of course dr mingo really enjoyed having you and we will be live and direct again on friday talking about talking about black spirituality uh part two Check say we hip and ting Chew them no no and ting We have them going and ting Now pop no style Our strictly roots Now pop no style Our strictly roots See me from the road and you not call out to me Do you see me in my pants and ting See me in my altar back Send me gear out of time. Give me a little bass, make me wine out my waist. Uptown top ranking. See me in my bends and ting. Dolly true constant spring. Them checks that we come from Cosmo Spring. But the true, them no know and ting. Them no know, say we top ranking. Uptown top ranking. 
hundred. Check out we jamming and ting. Love is all I bring. In I'm a khaki suit and ting. Now pop no style. I strictly roots. Now pop no style. I strictly roots. Watch out we chuck it and ting. In our khaki suit and ting. <laughs> 